Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council, just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Forgive me for running off the fine and the one thing I have to do Welcome to Washed Up Emo Podcast, episode 95. I'm Tom Mullen from WashedUpEmo.com. Today we welcome Jay Adelberg. Who is Jay Adelberg? Jay booked the LNG Club in Connecticut from 1991 to 2001 and was one of the first to jump on the emo boom by booking the Get Up Kids, Saves a Day early on, and even brand new's first show in Connecticut. Jay then transitioned to Hot Topic in 2001 as the music buyer. Simply, if you bought music from Hot Topic from 2001 to 2012, he was responsible. He talks about the changes Hot Topic had to make over the years, how he learned from his own mistakes, and when he knew it was time to leave the company. This episode is really about going with your passions, wherever they take you, and doing what you think is right. This is episode 95 of the Washed Up Email Podcast with Jay Adelberg. So I actually, uh, I got into... Um, this, the, the G had been around before me. Like it was, you know, I think... Um, Scott Magruder, the old owner, um, I think he opened that, he took that place over in the early nineties. It's definitely around in the early nineties. I got involved in the scene in Connecticut, uh, in 1991. And then in 1993, we opened a DIY club up closer to Yukon, uh, called studio 158. And so that was really the epicenter for all things DIY punk rock in Connecticut from the time that it was open. So from 93 to 95. And I mean, in that, in those the three years that that place was open, I mean, we had every single band you could possibly think of, you know, from Jawbreaker to Bikini Kill to Seven Seconds to Texas is the Reason to Split Lip. I mean, you know, the, the, the first Connecticut shows for all the hardcore bands like Snapcase uh, and Earth Crisis and Strife and all like, I mean, it was really the, the place where everything happened. Um, that place closed in 95 and I then was kind of out of the scene for a little bit. I had been playing in a ska band at the end there. I kind of, and then uh, stopped doing that and spent a couple of years not involved. And in 1998, got back involved again, got, somehow got sucked back into it. And that's when I started really doing stuff with the, at the G. Up to that point, in the early 90s, the LNG had really been more 
of a place where metal bands played um, and, and bigger, more like rock bands played. So it wasn't, there wasn't really anyone doing true DIY shows, DIY shows there in the early nineties. Um, and then I started to do shows there. I had done some ska shows there in the mid nineties, but other than that it was like, um, you know, like that, that's where biohazard would play it, you know, or like, um, you know, I mean, like a lot of metal bands played their earliest shows there, uh, in Connecticut too. Uh, so in, in 99, my first real show back, was like in the spring of 99, I booked Hot Water Music to play there. And the owner had known me, Scott had known me because of the ska shows I booked there earlier, like in the mid-90s. And that was the time when ska in Connecticut was really big. You know, he was really big all over the East Coast. So we were doing one or two shows a month there, and, and almost all of them were always, you know, close to capacity. So he trusted my judgment when I told him I wanted to go back to my roots and start booking more kind of, you know, punk and, and hardcore and post-hardcore related type things. So the first show I did with in the spring of 99 was Hot Water Music. And that was right off the bat. I mean, that, you know, that was, I think, right before No Division came out for them. And um, they were already huge and people were into them. And that show did really well. And then from there, because I had done it with that, the booking agency that booked um, you know, uh, hot water music. She then offered me, uh, the Juliana theory right after that. And that was like, they were still not really a thing yet. Like they're, the, you know, they're, I think their first record on tooth and nail had maybe just come out, but no one really knew what they were all about yet. Um, so I did them right at, right on the heels of the hot water show. And it actually did surprisingly well. And the guys, the band were really nice guys. And, uh, and that got other booking agents suddenly started calling me. And I had been out of circulation with most of those agents for a couple of years since Studio 158 closed down. And then I got this most interesting phone call. It was a gentleman by the name of Andrew Ellis. So he had, at, for, for 1999, some of like the biggest fans out there. And that fall of 99 through him, I booked the Get Up Kids to play at, um, at the LNG. And that was, in my run of shows, the first sold-out show. So uh, it was the Get Up Kids. Uh, he also booked Hot Rod Circuit, who were from Connecticut, or I relocated to Connecticut. So they were kind of like a local band. Um, Six Going on Seven played that show. And then kind of a funny story was, um, so I wanted to put Saves the Day on the, as the opening act for that bill. And Andrew did not want them on the bill. <laughs> and I fought real hard to put them on the bill. And he finally relented and said, all right, you can put them on the bill, but they have to play first. And that actually, I think, turned out in hindsight to be a decision that I think Hot Rod Circuit and Six Going at Seven perhaps wished had not been made. Um, but I remember uh, Saves the Day, I, need, I had to put them on. The place was, was already getting quite full. There was a line around the corner. I had to start the show. And I, I, and I still, whenever I listen to that song, The Choke, from uh, the first Saves the Day record, I still can distinctly remember them starting with that song and the way that Chris looked at the crowd and realized that the place was totally packed. And, you know, he and I had conspired a bit because, you know, I really wanted them on this bill. I thought they were a great band. And uh, his 
um, lyrics really spoke to me as someone, you know, for me, I was always like a jawbreaker Sam I am guy. I'm a sucker for the stuff that goes right to your, your heart and soul. And I felt like his songwriting and his lyrics were something that really, you know, even as, at that point I was in my late twenties. Um, and, and it was something that really kind of brought me back to the stuff that got me into that type of music in the first place. So they just blew the roof off the place. And there was very little hot rod circuit and six going on seven could do after that to top it. And it, and I remember it was like a huge high. And then it was this lull in the middle of the show. And I like both of those bands. Hot rod circuit are still one of my all time favorite bands. And those are great dudes. Six going on seven. I don't, I don't, um, I never really got to know them all that well, but it wasn't until the get up kids finally got on stage that the energy finally came back in the room. And another kind of funny, distinct thing I remember was that they uh, had just put out that record, um, something to write home about. And the record hadn't come out yet. It was still uh, maybe a month away from coming out and people knew uh, the lyrics to some of the songs. And I think um, Matt says, how do you guys know uh, the words to these songs? And the audience members yelled, the internet. And it was like, you know, this is 1999. And it was kind of like a, uh, a harbinger of things to come in terms of the internet's role in music in general. Um, but so after that Get Up Kids show, um, Scott was like, uh, the owner of the LNG was like, basically, hey, man, you're clearly onto something here. Just go crazy. Like, you just do whatever you want to do. You tell me what dates you need. I, if I have to move stuff around, I will do that. And let's, let's just really knock it out of the park. And, fr- and from there on out, um, you know, it was, I mean, you saw some of the flyers of the shows. You know, it was, you know, we, we did in those from 99 to 2000. I mean, we did uh, At the Drive-In and we did Great and we had The Promise Ring and Jeff's Brazil. And, you know, and, and I got to book in that period, every single band I ever wanted to book except Jimmy World. I never got to do Jimmy World, and I loved them, and Clarity was by far my favorite record of 1999, and it really bummed me out that in that period, I, I never got to book them in there, but I got to do everybody else. Um, and we even did a few other, we even, you know, we had a veil came back, and Mr. T Experience uh, came and played, and, you know, so it was like, I got to do a lot of things that were, that were kind of more close to my roots, and then a lot of things that were definitely more in that kind of indie emo front, and, you know, I mean, I, I had um, you know, Death Cab for Cutie there as the opening band on a five-band bill. I think it might have been their first or second time coming to Connecticut, and they played with a motley assortment of and Hot Rod Circuit was the headliner, which makes sense, but like the Up on In um, was on there, which was Zach Barokas uh, from Jawbox's kind of weird jazz, free jazz fusion band. And I think the Explosion might have played that bill. Um, and it was definitely like a weird kind of motley assortment, but Death Cab were the, oh, I think the Damn Personal played that bill as well. Um, and, uh, but it was, I mean, it, it was amazing because. There were there are only a few shows that were that were like stinkers out of all of them. For the most part, I tried to um, be very curatorial about the the shows that I put on. Instead of just saying yes to everything that booking agents threw my way, I, I tried to really make sure that the shows were were tailored to the stuff that you know to to make them all. And and because of that, that's how I ended up with a lot of those kind of superstar stacked bills like that. 
get up kids hot rest circuit saves the day or you know um a kind of uh some of the the bills of, of that sort where i know people look at the flyers now online and go holy shit the that band opened for that band at the time or you know like the first time i remember it was the end of 99 the december it was it was christmas break of 99 i did a piebald show that was and piebald were one of my favorites they came and played I mean, I probably did them six or seven times through those three years. Uh, those dudes are totally great dudes. They always brought a good crowd and a lot of energy to the G. Um, and, um, and I'm still in contact with Travis to this day. Um, you know, I, I lived in L.A. for a while. and He lived in L.A. at the same time. And our paths would cross. We even jammed a couple of times, um, you know, with the hope of maybe doing some musical stuff. But I don't think my style fit what he wanted to do. So it didn't really work out. My drumming style didn't quite fit what he was doing. But so the open so out of that on that pie ball bill, uh, it was like um, uh, Lazy Cane I think played and Hot Rod Circuit and Newfound Glory was at the front of the bill. And this was like on a Monday night during Christmas break in December, and I distinctly remember there were like 200 kids there at the at the bill at the show. And after Newfound Glory played, about a third of the crowd left, and I remember going, "Okay, so that band is on something," you know, and and it was like they came back and played every six months for the next two years. And every time it was like bigger and bigger and bigger until the point where they, they outgrew the G, you know, the underground scene was getting big. And just like you said, it kind of outgrew certain venues, um, you know, uh, by Oh three, Oh four, it started to, you know, it permeated mainstream, uh, media, you know, it wasn't like, uh, these bands were, um, they were still probably huffing it and not making that much, um, or they're still obviously not huge, huge, but in terms of the scene, they were. Oh yeah, for sure. I, and, and, you know, it was weird because I was involved in the scene, you know, like there's like the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the BC kind of, uh, AD kind of year was really 1994, you know? So like after green day broke, you know, that the scene was no longer something like, you know, it got, I mean, it got flooded with, opportunists and careerists at that point too. You know, you, if you got into punk rock in 1992, it was because you wanted the opposite of those things. You know, you didn't want to be on MTV. You didn't want to be on the radio. You weren't trying to be on the cover of spin. You, you wanted the opposite of those things. And after green day, you know, you, you, you never knew anymore. You know, I mean, it was like you had bands like, you know, I remember feeling a distinct anger towards the band taking back Sunday because I felt like, that, you know, they basically went from playing and, you know, practicing in their basement to being, to having a record deal and being on MTV. And it, and it felt like they, they, they got to skip the steps where they paid their dues. Now, I don't necessarily know for sure that that's the, the case with, with them, but it certainly felt that way at the time that bands were not, that there was a different path. I mean, I, you know, um, I booked uh, right at the end of my time booking shows before I moved to California, I booked a brand new's first show in Connecticut and um, they had sent me their demo. And I remember thinking that that Jude law and the semester abroad song was particularly good. And I booked them as the opening band for, um, uh, man, what the hell are they called? They were called uh, autopilot off. Do you remember them at all? Yes, I do. Yeah. They were, and, and so they had originally been called Cooter, I think. Yes. That was a hor- they, both, both horrible names, but better than Cooter. Yeah. So, so they played at this, at that point, I couldn't get the G that night. So I had booked it at this little tiny place called the Hanover house in, 
in Hamden, uh, Connecticut, and they um, they actually went over shockingly well with uh, with the crowd. Like the crowd was really into them, and I remember Jesse saying to the crowd, like, um, "Hey, you know, um, you guys are really cool. Who in here has heard of us before?" And you know, maybe three or four kids in the crowd open uh, raised their hands and. And he said something like, so you're basically just telling me that the rest of you all are cool motherfuckers. And everyone's like, yeah, you know, and, and, it, and I think it was a really good show for them. Um, but they, you know, they were one of those bands too. Like, I, it's funny, I would probably think the same of them as to, I thought of Taking Back Sunday if I didn't know that they, they had, you know, were, were out there, you know, playing basements in places like the Hanover House, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, I think too, the, the those moments where, you know, it was a random t- uh, tape cassette in the mail, or it was a CD sent in, or um, those physical things started to turn digital. Uh, if it was, wow, this band had a ton of pure volume plays, or this band, right. uh, you know, was uh, in everybody's top eight on MySpace. Those things sort of happened after you had left, um, you know, the club. And I think the you kind of finding those bands. I still think that happens today. I still believe that there's, you know, you might get an email one day or you might get something like that, but for the most part, you kind of have to make your own noise. Yeah. You know, it's funny. The, I I have really kind of very defined ideas on how the internet changed music and my involvement in, in, um, in the scene, especially at the, at the time that we're talking about led to my, career change and I had been while I was booking those shows in Connecticut like managing a hot topic store um I had needed a job when I got off tour with the ska band I was um unemployed and and basically homeless and uh you know moved in I lived the joke of you know what do you call a drummer with no girlfriend homeless I had to move in with my girlfriend at the time on very short notice and uh, I was like, oh, yeah, there's that weird gothic store that just opened in the mall. Maybe I'll try, try to go get a job there. And, um, because I was booking these bands, I was uh, Hot Topic at the time had a very open policy that store employees to send suggestions into headquarters. They wanted to know, uh, you know, people who had their finger on the pulse, what's going on. And so I was telling them about all of these bands like Saves the Day, like Midtown, like Thursday, before those bands were getting were blowing up or and getting, you know, big having big records out and and Hot Topic would jump on those bands right away and were getting results from them. And that's how I kind of got my foot in the door. And in two thousand and one, they moved they offered me the job to be the, one of the music buyers for the company and moved me to California. And that's actually why I left Connecticut and why I stopped booking shows for a while and moved out to Los Angeles to work at the Hot Topic headquarters in the music department. And so I did that job until the end of 2012. And in that time, from 2001 to 2012, I saw the everything you were talking about, how pure volume impacted bands and how you could find about bands through that or how then uh, MySpace then became the, the place and how, you know, and, and it was a really interesting arc that it took, how it, you know, it it made things bigger than ever and then ended up, you know, kind of like cannibalizing itself at at the end there. And and I think a lot of people have a distinct idea of, you know, they say, well, you know, well, downloading ruined music, you know, or, and it's like, well, downloading, all, all downloading ruined was music as a sellable commodity. But the internet, 
to me, I think ruins music in a different way. <laughs> no, I think, you know, what would be interesting is you telling people what a music buyer is at Hot Topic. As the buyer, it was basically my job to decide which records we were going to feature and how, how much we were going to feature them. And, um, you know, and it was an exciting time for punk and hardcore and emo and, you know, all that stuff was in those years was really blown up. And, you know, the er- the first three quarters of the 2000s was an amazing time to be part of that industry. Um, because at that point, everything was still like, especially the Internet's role, and it was all uncharted territory. Everyone was making shit up as we went along. And um, it was unfortunate that in the end that it kind of, you know, music retail is, you know, is, you know, these days, the majority of, of music consumers out there believe music to be worth zero dollars and zero cents. And, you know, once the, the, once the genie's out of the bottle, it doesn't really go back in. Um, so the industry has been forced to find new sources of revenue and new ways uh, to keep itself relevant and afloat. You know, and it's like, I mean, even record, like people can debate endlessly now whether record labels are relevant anymore, you know, and, and, uh, and I think that just from being on the retail side of things, I had a very different perspective on, on how the, 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 the relationship between bands and retail and the internet and all of those kind of things than your average, you know, just music fan who goes to shows and likes to buy records. But I also think, too, someone going into Hot Topic then, which I had unfortunately had to, I was not a big fan of a lot of the stuff that was going on once it got really, really derivative. But initially, Hot Topic, and I think to to a lot of people, that was the store that had the records, had the t-shirts, had the stuff that they wanted, and I think some people... didn't want to admit it? No, no, I think, you know, I mean, I didn't, but there, you know, I think there was a lot, there was a a certain period where if I was from a small town that, uh, you know, maybe we had a couple cool record stores, but maybe someone doesn't know that and they only get to go to the mall with their parents and that's the one store that they can go into other than Spencer Gifts or whatever rando store it was. And that was something that you could look into different places. So I think Hot Topic played a, a part in helping the independent scene that way of having another voice, another place. And I think, you know, getting your t-shirt, I know when uh, Equal Vision had, you know, t-shirts that we would tell you guys about and say, hey, we've got this band and we've got these t-shirts. And if you guys took them, that was a big deal for the band and big deal for the label. Um, And I think sometimes people kind of just looked, I mean, you were doing, you, you had to make calls on things that you hoped flew off the shelves. And when a kid went to the store and said, that's so cool, that's here, that took a bunch of different meetings. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, you know, and also I, because of my roots, I was always cognizant of wanting to put Hot Topics money into the hands of labels and merchandise companies that I thought could do the most good with it. Um, I, I always made a concerted effort to do things like, you know, I wanted to support Hopeless and I wanted to support EVR and I wanted to support Trustkill and, and uh, uh, Ferret and, and No Idea and all of those labels and distributors. And, and, and you know, um, I had a great relationship always with Vic over at Revelation and because, or, or you know, I, and, you know um, the guys at Lumberjack because I felt, felt that by putting, you know, uh, money into their coffers, those were labels that were in a good position to go out and, and support their bands better and find more bands and help the scene grow. So I always felt good about our role 
despite what anyone thought of where all oh, they're selling out the scene or all oh, they're just corporatists or they're just, you know, like, that's fine. I can understand. I, I listen, I was 19 once and, and didn't want any, you know, didn't want Rolling Stone and Finn nosing around in my punk rock scene. I, I understand. I, I, I fully get that. But I think that you and I had different perspectives because we were part of the business machine and knew how things really worked and knew how a copacetic relationship between something like Hot Topic and Equal Vision could not only be great for both of our entities, but for the bands, for the scene in general, for the kids. You know, it's like, you know, you, people always would complain. They would say, well, I don't want my, the, my favorite bands to sell out, but I want them to be able to come on tour and be in my town two or three times a year. It's like, well, well, you can't have it both ways, buddy. Which way do you want it? You know, if you want to, you want to be, if you want them to come to your town two or three times a year, they're going to need to make a few bucks. You know? well, and also, too, it's the buyer in your local record store had five, but you could order thousands and oh, yeah. regional or, you know, if it was a if, 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 it, if it was a band that was big in the south, you know, you knew you could stock up Florida. And you know, there was those regional things that I think, again, it goes back to that sort of there was only so many places you could go. Sure. And, you know, even for a while there, um, around the end of the 2000s, they developed a second music department at Hot Topic, which I was in charge of, that was for local bands. So they wanted me to do very uh, certain buys with surgical precision, where I would buy one 30-count box of a, of a band and just put six copies in five local stores uh, to help support local bands. And uh, funny enough, that is uh, how, like, for example, the band All Time Low ended up getting signed to Hopeless Records was because Louis uh, Posen and I were uh, good friends. He knew that I was doing this local band thing, and he asked me one day, who are some of the bands that are doing really well in your local band thing? And, I, and All Time Low had been doing great in Maryland. I couldn't keep the CD in stock. It was flying off the shelves. And lo and behold, uh, six months later, they, they were on Hopeless Records. And uh, so it's, you know, that in itself, too, I think, showed that Hot Topic, actually, I, I felt, largely had its heart in the right place in doing those things. You know, they, they genuinely wanted to be part of the catalyst of what made local and regional music scenes grow and thrive. We know the other thing I thought maybe people don't know and when I went to the headquarters was the uh, mock stores, the stores that you had that were, you know, either a new design or a new way of showcasing merch or the, whatever it was. And it was fascinating to see the mock-ups because, you know, you, you see the store and you're like, well, that just happened. And I think that was an interesting thing for me to see is that how much thought and it's the same thing with grocery stores and the same thing with any store, but it was funny when it was like a sort of a punk rock place doing that as well. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, you know, in the, in the late nineties, for example, you know, everything was um, really goth, you know, it was Marilyn Manson and nine inch nails were selling millions of records. And so there was the store design with the gates and the chandelier and all that kind of stuff. And, but by, you know, four years later, you know, Marilyn Manson and Nine Inch Nails were not the thing anymore. And it was much, um, it was like, became uh, suddenly it was all of the ha the bands um, with swoopy haircuts and, and dudes in girls' pants and every band was bleeding and dying. 
so it was so it, it evolved. They were very cognizant of their evolution, and it it, it always caused revolt amongst the, the, the customer faithful, like you know. But um, but it was smart on the part of the company to to do those things and to you know always be thinking about what the next look and the next concept was to try to stay. You know, you, I mean, you, if you're a star, if you're called Hot Topic, well, you better have your finger on the pulse. Otherwise, you know, that's, that's false advertising, bud, you know? Yeah, what what, what other things, uh, I mean, you kind of, again, you're, the time there, 01 to 2012, was an interesting arc um, because you were kind of right there as it broke a little bit from the scene that you were involved with. And you kind of carried through and to 2012, what were some of, what were some other things that sort of happened or, um, things that you didn't expect? Well, what I didn't, the biggest thing I didn't expect was I think what in my mind, it really precipitated my leaving of a hot topic, which, I mean, I was always, I I'd like to think I had a little self-awareness. I knew that it was important for the person in that position at Hot Topic to be young and hip and have their finger on the pulse and, and, and be real into what was going on. And, and by, and in around 2008, there was a, a number of things that culminated that drew into question whether, how long I could continue. And when the economy really shit the bed in 2008, the music business was already on the ropes at that point. You know, the, um, the things were just not physical music just wasn't selling the way that it, had been selling. And at that point, when things started to suffer, Hot Topic made some particularly egregious decisions and they brought in some senior level management who really changed the identity of the store. And there was a, you know, there, that, there, they were the ones who made the decisions to start doing things like carrying Justin Bieber and Lady Gaga, Taylor Swift, and expanding out what the music selection was and and it and it and a, and a lot of it was be, um, because Twilight got really popular, and it was funny because to me Twilight seemed to be a natural thing for Hot Topic. Or what? It's a teenage property about vampires. What's more Hot Topic than that? But it it start it started to bring in a much younger demographic into our stores. Our 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 sweet spot had been like fifteen to twenty, and now suddenly it was ten to fifteen, and so it made sense in that regard to broaden our musical palette, but it really alienated the, the core hot topic customers in a major way. And why not? And it was a very tough time to be there um, when that was happening, because I felt like we had for years said that we were as a, as a company, we stood for something. And then as soon as times were tough, we felt like we were willing to throw those principles out the window. And it's like, if you can't stick to your principles when times are tough, then they, then they barely meant anything to begin with. And it, and it really hurt my feelings. And not only did it hurt my feelings, but it hurt my passion for music in a big, big way. And um, I, I, I weathered the storm. And, at that, and after a couple of years, I think Hot Topic kind of, realized that they had damaged their brand tremendously. They canned those upper level people who had made those decisions. They brought in some new people. But I think at that point for me, the damage was done. And I never, even though I stayed there for about another year afterwards, I was never able to fully re-engage emotionally with what was going on. And also at that point, I was already in my mid thirties. I had long said Hot Topic should not have a 40-year-old music buyer. It doesn't do Hot Topic any favors. And I started to 
really kick into gear like needing an exit plan. You know, I knew, plus the music industry having changed so much, I, I didn't want to try to figure out a new role. I, I just wanted to get out at that point. I had my, the damage was done with me and I needed to go. Um, <laughs> I think, and, you know, and, a lot of people don't, don't realize that. A lot of people stay in their job for 10 years longer than they should, and they've gotten enough friends, and they kind of just sit there and do the same thing. And I think that was that was good of you to do that. And also Hot Topic, I hope, realized what you were doing and, and, and understood that. I, I think so. And, luck, and luckily, I had a really, really good assistant, and I had groomed him to take over the position upon my departure and and. That's exactly how it worked. And, and I would think also because I, you know, I mean, I, I mean I'll mean, i be honest. There was a six-month period where um, about maybe a half a year before I ended up leaving where every day I was sure they was going to be the day they would lay me off, you know, because, because I was getting – I've been with the company for 15 years, and I was making really good money, way too good money for the amount of results the department was producing at that point. And, uh, and, and you know – Bless their hearts, they didn't lay me off, and I got to leave on my own, uh, the way I uh, on my own accord. I found a, a an industry I wanted to get into, and I handed in my notice, and I gave like a month's notice. And they, I, I had always said when I because I'd been there for so long, I I wanted to high five everyone on the way out the door. That that was to me the idea of like the best way I could possibly leave. And they literally lined everyone up and let me high five people on the way out the door on my last day. That is awesome. It, not only that, and, but I, and I think enough time has passed now that I can talk about it, but I left a couple of weeks before the end of a quarter when I was, if I had been able to, and I, and I had to leave to start my new job, in, you know, in Chicago. And they, uh, I would stood to make a huge bonus because business had gotten much better at that point, like the overall business, not the music business, but the overall business. And largely because Hot Topic then, got away from carrying the Justin Bieber and got way more into licensing, which is the reason why Hot Topic is still relevant now. They got way into movie properties and video game properties and anime and all that kind of stuff. And that's where they are, the space they live in now. That is the reason why the company is still doing well. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, so I, uh, they, yeah, they, I, they did not have to give me a penny. And on my last day, the, the merchandise manager and the CEO pulled me into the CEO's office and said, look, uh, repeat after me. You are a consultant here for the next 90 days. And I, I said, um, I'm a consultant here for the next 90 days. And she went, great. And she pushed an envelope across the desk, which contained, uh, you know, about 80% of what that bonus would have been. Uh, you know, and you know, they didn't have to give me a penny and instead they gave me a giant check on the way out the door. And I appreciated that. And I, you know, I gave that company 15 years and I stuck through some pretty shitty times and I thought that they did me a real solid on the way out the door. That and the high five thing, I got, I got nothing bad to say about, about my personal experience on the way out the door. Unfortunately, a lot of other people's experiences ended very poorly I'm glad that I wasn't one of those people. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that it's, again, you mentioned about how they sort of changed and even you saying now they've changed to do licensing. That's very hard for a company to do. 
And yes, you can look at sales and yes, you can realize something isn't doing well, but a lot of times it's too late. Someone, you know, is trying to hold on to their their one relationship and they keep trying to flub it up in the meeting and give other reasons and and for them, I'm sure that there were pain points and it wasn't as easy as what I'm explaining, but I still think even through those times that you were there, they did realize those things ahead of time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean it's they they definitely um, we're able to, uh, and it's, and I think that's another thing that goes along with exactly what you're saying is it's often very hard for companies to admit that they're making a mistake and, and then course correct quickly mm-hmm. because, it, because a lot of, you know, especially, you know, executives don't want to admit that they were wrong. And in this case, Hot Topic just fired them. The two that made the big, they were like, you're, you're done. We're clearly on the wrong path. You guys are out of here. We're going to get some new people in here and get this uh, shit back on track. And, you know, and I think we're very public about it, too, in, in saying to the customer base, look, we understand the last couple of years we made some big mistakes. Give us a chance. We're going to try to make things right by you again. And, and, that, and that is also tough, you know. Uh, do you think there w- I mean, will be places that people will congregate um, for even even if it's not music, just things. I mean, I still, you know, the mall is still important, even though everyone's on Twitter or social media, the mall is still pretty important. Or the local store that maybe has the water pipes and some other stuff that, you know, that guy yeah. might have a few things that I still, me in my heart, I, you know, I drove 45 minutes to a record store. Um, and I didn't, you know, I would, you know, you send money in an envelope and hope something comes back. Um, I know that sounds crazy to people, but it wasn't as instant. Are, are you still feel that those personal physical connections at places will still be around? I, I mean, bless their souls, but there are still some out there, you know, like that there are still small record stores that can exist or, you know, even a big place like Amoeba out in Los Angeles is a real good example of, you know, that it's, it's not dead yet, but it, it's, I think that one of the issues that compounds that is that alternative culture and alternative cultures um, just don't exist the same way that they did when I, you know, when, when, I, when I was young, you know, that were these, that were these goths, you know, and, they, you know, like it's, it's, it's they, they, a lot of alternative culture, whether it's hardcore or punk or, or goth industrial requires like private uh, out of the way, dark places to fester and grow. And, and the internet doesn't allow there to be any dark places anymore. There's no more privacy. And I think that that allowed all of those cultures to get absorbed into mainstream cultures, which is the reason why it is tough for, you know, uh, for things like in, like, you know, a, a, a real, punk scene to exist the way that it did 25 years ago. You know what I mean? It's, it, it it's, and, and I mean, I, and the truth, truth being said, I, you know, I'm going to be 44 this year and hardly an authority on what's going on out there in the world. Um, in 2017, I actually got back involved in booking punk rock shows in California for a few years in the, like uh, 2007, eight, 2009, and, and had a good time as part of the scene that embraced, um, you know, like the kind of the fest, like those types of folks, you know, a little bit older, a little wiser, a little more bearded, a little bit more cowboy shirt, uh, you know, a little bit more hot water music type thing. 
Um, but it was, but it was nice to be part of a DIY scene again of people who didn't give a shit about trying to get on MTV. Um, but, uh, you know, but since that time I'm, I'm real disconnected and my love of going to record stores is another thing that never really recovered. I don't buy physical music anymore. Like I, it pains me to, to admit that. And I don't know what bothers me more that I don't buy physical music anymore or that it doesn't really bother me that I don't buy physical music anymore. You know, like I, I pay $9.99 a month for Spotify, unlimited Spotify. And yeah, I'm glad the split lip record is on there. You know, I'm glad that Texas is the reason it's on there. It's, it's, it's harder for me and maybe younger people are better at it, but it's harder for me to feel connected to a band without having something and i don't buy that much music either my vinyl is very very specific uh to certain uh years and eras and bands and if it's something else i don't want it <laughs> i also live in new york right. and i don't have any room <laughs> i do see some labels out there that are geared towards the younger crowd that i think are doing a good job of the thing similar types of activities that the that the labels that you and i cut our teeth on do so like I think that someone like um, Chris Hansen from uh, what's his label called? Uh, no Sleep. That's yes. right. Is that the mm-hmm. name of his label? Yep. Bands like, you know, I, I see a lot of effort being made by bands like Balance and Composure and Citizen. And um, and uh, I think one of those that, uh, you know, my old assistant used to turn me on to all these bands and, and I really appreciate him doing it. And, uh, and, I, and I think that for a long time, Craig at Rise Records was doing the same thing, really trying to help. Because especially because Craig is an older guy, uh, and in my age, and he and I grew up on the same stuff, and and you know both bonded over a mutual love of the melodic seven seconds middle years, you know things like that. Uh, he, I think he's someone who gets it and has tried hard to help give kids that those the paths to those types of connections that you're talking about. So it warms my heart when I see people like Chris and Craig out there doing those kind of things and trying to keep people engaged on that level, because I agree with you that it's, that it's important. It, it's part of the experience, you know, it's part of what made it meaningful and part of our identity as, as young people and growing up in that, that scene. Maybe there's not that physical thing left, but I still feel like it's in the ether. I, I agree. And, and, it, and, and I, and I feel, yeah, I feel similarly when I see it happen. And even though I'm, I'm kind of on the peripheral, you know, I mean, I still follow enough of these entities on social media. And plus, you know, I still love to listen to music and I like to discover new bands. So, um, you know, and I guess, for, you know, for a long time, it was, like I said, my, my old assistant at Hot Topic, who, you know, I, for, for two, three years after I left Hot Topic, I'd send him an email every couple of months going, all right, what are you listening to? What do I need to know? Give me the, what? Pianos become the teeth? Okay, I'll look that up. Balance and composure? Okay, I'll look that up. Pity sex? Okay, I'm on it. You know, like... And, and I appreciated it because, you know, I mean, even in, at, at my age, like, you know, I, 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 you know, I can only listen to the same records so many times before, you know, you go, oh, shit, man, I need, I need something new to listen to, you know? And, and every generation always says, um, like, oh, man, you know, I remember, uh, you know, like, for example, in, uh, in hardcore, hardcore was always one of those generations where it was like the current generation only liked the current bands and would have display a, a tremendous ignorance of the bands that came before them. And then, so it's like when Snapcase and Earth Crisis and Stripe were the big thing, all of the Revelation Records youth crew kids were like, 
you know, well, you guys don't know what hardcore is. And the, then the new kids are like, all right, thanks a lot, grandpa. And it's like, but that just perpetuates always, always. Every generation is going to think that their shit is the shit and the shit before it doesn't matter. And then the people from the generation before are going to be like, you know, that's just noise and start to say things that only old people say, you know, what do you mean? It's five bands on this bill. All these bands sound the same, you know, <laughs> the, but the one thing now, that, I say those things. Yeah. What do you mean? The headliner goes on at 11. Fuck. I'm not going to that. You no, know? you always, always find out who the promoter is and get the set times. Cause you can have dinner. You can time it correctly. That's, that is the, uh, that is how to do it. But I think too, the, yep. you mentioning, um, you know, the each generation and what was so exciting about uh, hearing about the bands in, you know, 2009, 2010 and continuing on is that it didn't sound derivative like the mid 2000s, which I felt got derivative very quick. There's some great bands from that era. I worked with a ton of them. There's amazing music. It just got so derivative from so many different reasons. And to have well, so much more fake. There was so much more money, fame, and fortune at stake then. Yeah. That it, that it's you know like you know one a band hits you know and then suddenly the, uh, every label wants a band that sounds just like it you know quick and so uh, you know now because there isn't that fame and fortune at the same level it lends itself to a lot more originality you know I mean I I you know I I want to bring them up one more time but that band Dallas and Composure. Or take a, take a band like Title Fight. There's a good example. Like, that band doesn't bear any resemblance to the band that they were when they started. And they get some license on a creative arc. And even and it's funny, because them and Balance and Composure have changed a lot. And sometimes people go, oh, well, I, you know, I'll give both those bands A for effort. Like, for, for not wanting to make the same record and for trying to be creative and, and reinvent themselves. And even if the end product isn't your favorite, well, you got to applaud the effort, you know? And I think that if the, if the scene were as, it had that same derivative nature that you're talking about from the mid-2000s when we were plugging away on some of those bands, that bands like that would have less freedom to, to change radically like that. You know, it, there would be so much more pressure on them to sell records. I have no doubt that Balance and Composure sold less records this time around than their first two. And you know what I mean? Like, I don't know that for a fact, but, but I, but it certainly seemed like their stock didn't, didn't rise with their newest release, you know, but man, those dudes didn't want to put the same record out three times in a row and they came up with some new shit and it's different and it's creative. And if you, if you give it a chance, you'll realize that it, that they put a lot of effort into being smart and being creative, and, and that, I think, is, you know, should be applauded. Yeah, I, I'm glad that some of the bands, that, at least that I personally think are of higher quality, like Jimmy World or Bayside or some of those, uh, they, they are in the, the more fortunate category of being able to just keep doing their thing, and sometimes they pick up some new fans, but they have a nice legion of, of dedicated fans who will go and enjoy, or Coheed was another good example, and that, that, that don't have the Taking Back Sunday curse. I, I personally thought that it, when that Taking Back Sunday was kind of like kind of meh, you know, and and then Hawthorne Heights were kind of meh, and a lot of those bands were just kind of aping each other, and 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 I didn't I didn't find a ton of uh, art, you know, I didn't think there was a ton of artistic creativity or integrity there. So their their downfalls don't bother me so much, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, and, and also like a band like Brand New sells out MSG. Sure, 
Sure, and they don't have to play Jude Law in the semester abroad at any show, and they can still, <laughs> and still do well, you know, and 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 bless their souls for for being one of the ones that managed to get through it and do that. But you know, like these days, you know, yeah, taking bucks and they can't do that. They can't do that, you know. And uh, you know, uh, and if, you know, I don't know even know if Hawthorne Heights is still a band, but you know that uh, they got to play that. I can make it on my own. Like they, they got to play that. Probably got to open and close with it to <laughs> keep people happy. You know, it's true. Uh, I think. I'm sorry, you had to hear my singing. That no, no, I think it was totally. fine. I, I, I yeah. think it was fantastic. The what's really interesting. Um, you know, your, your sort of arc too. And I think a lot of people can take from this is, you know, you, you, you did something, you, you took a shot, you gave, you know, at the LNG, you kind of said, Hey, this is kind of happening. And then someone gave you a shot and the same thing, hot topic, saw what you were doing, gave you a shot. You saw it. I think something for people to take from, and maybe you can reiterate is that you took a shot and you found a place that let you, let you do that. Um, you know, if someone tells you, if, if, if someone tells you, no, you find another place. If, if, if you're so adamant and you know, you're right, find someone or, or, or do it yourself. Yeah. I, I just wanted to, when it came to booking shows, I just wanted to book the bands I liked. That was it. I booked shows. I wanted to see, I wanted to see great. And I wanted to see just Brazil and I wanted to see the promise ring. And I wanted to see at the drive-in, and I wanted to see Saves the Day and the Strider and the Get Up Kids. So I booked them so I could see them. Luckily, other people liked them too. But, you know, for me, it was, if I didn't like a band, I didn't book it. I, wouldn't, I, I would say no to the booking agent. Like, uh, I'm trying to think of one that I turned down. That was like a big, I, I wish I could think of one at the top of my head. That was, because I definitely turned down somewhere. I was just like, yeah, that doesn't sound like a good time. You know? <laughs> I. I think, I think that I book I turned down um, booking dashboard confessional because I just wasn't feeling it. I was like, yeah, I mean that's okay and all. And it's funny because in hindsight now I actually think that he that you know I kind of enjoy some of that dashboard confessional stuff, but I really like further scenes forever. But um, but I rem- I think I remember that Andrew Ellis was shocked because I turned them down. I turned down doing a dashboard confessional. I was like, and eh, that's just not really. You know, like that, you know, give it, I want more, like, at, especially at that point, too, you know, like bands like Great and At The Drive-In were doing really well. And I really liked stuff that had a voice of fire. I really liked a little harder edge in there. Um, you know, either that or it had to be the promise ring, you know. And it was, and, and, and it was like, to me, that was kind of like, it, it was just didn't really fit into the pantheon of, of, of the shows I wanted to see. I thought it was like, man, that's. That that sounds like it would be really boring. I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> so the lesson is, do what you want. Hopefully people show up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, for sure. It's, you know, I and, I and a lot of times, too, I made mistakes sometimes at Hot Topic, too, because I would be trying to feature records that I thought were awesome, but that didn't do well. You know, like, I remember there are two really distinct failures that I had uh, that, of records that I just thought were the fucking tits, and no, and they both were huge bombs, uh, sales wise. And one of them was the Lifetime reunion record in 2007. I put that in the listening stations across the country. One of the worst listening station titles 
in the history of Hot Topic. It was not good, Jay. It was not good. I still think that that record is fucking awesome, but (laughs) but it did not sell. And then I really, really loved, I think it came out in 2008 or 2009, um, Off With Their Heads, first real full length on um, on No Idea, From the Bottom. Yes. And I pushed the shit out of that record, and it just didn't sell. Um, And it was a bummer, because I thought that band was like, the best thing to happen to punk rock in a long time. And I still do. That record holds up and it's a great, great record. But those two stand out as times where I pushed my taste too far into what would sell. You know what I mean? Like uh, that was, you know, something you had to, I had to fight a lot at Hot Topic. I didn't have to fight at booking shows. Definitely had to fight it at Hot Topic. Like don't impose your taste too much. You'll make a big giant financial mistake. And those were two giant financial mistakes. And I, you know, and I, in hindsight, I'd probably do it again, but, but I look back and go, oh, yeah. You, yeah. Still, you still got the check at the end. And well, unfortunately, I think um, <laughs> Fueled by Ramen and No Idea both got stocked with some big returns on those two, which, <laughs> never, which was never my first choice to do to those guys because those were all good dudes. Um, but, you know, sorry, I tried. Which, if, was- if, if people don't know, is that when you sell – a CD to like a Best Buy or stores, the, the if the stores don't sell them, they they return them to you, um, and you you get charged. Now vinyl, if you don't know, if it, people don't know, is a one way sale. So if you sell vinyl to Urban Outfitters or whatever it is that store, it will not come back. So it counts as a sale. It's a big deal. Exactly. If you if the store needs to clear, they'll put it on clearance or they'll mark it out of stock and destroy it. That's what they have to do. With. And, um, but yeah, but, and, and that actually, you know, helped a lot, especially on my way out. My old assistant, um, Travis at Hot Topic, he was really the catalyst behind, um, the, you know, cause Hot Topic at one point was like 25% of all the vinyl sales going on in the United States. And, and it was really him. I was just smart enough to let him run with it. <laughs> I wish I could claim that that was my idea at, you know, to carry all the vinyl at Hot Topic, but it definitely was not. He was the vinyl enthusiast and the collector. I just said, hey, man, run with it. Make deals, get exclusives, do what you got to do. And he made some real good decisions and sold a shit ton of records. I actually lately have um, gotten into a bunch of the, you know, the kind of uh, revival bands that have come out, too. Uh, there's, you know, like uh, that. Uh, I liked that Everyone Everywhere band and um, that, um, uh, you know, the, the band Football Etc. is from here, from Houston. And they're also, um, so, you know, I work for the professional soccer teams here in town and they are season ticket holders for both teams. So our paths have crossed both in a musical context and in a, a, a soccer context. Jay, that was great. Awesome. I'm glad, I, I'm glad but I'm, I always hear sometimes that I'm, you know, I ramble on and bore people with this kind of stuff. It is my, and my pleasure. I'm glad I, I love talking about this stuff. So I'm glad I got a chance to do it and, um, yeah, and I, I, uh, I'll, I, I'm following uh, all your uh, stuff now, so I'll, uh, I'll keep an eye out. And you know, I, I love the, the, the some of the, the pictures, and I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad, you, I'm glad that someone is out there to document uh, what was an awesome, awesome time in music, and uh, and co- that continues to thankfully uh, influence new bands in good ways. Uh, you know, even today, it, it warms an old man's heart. Let me tell you. Thank you for listening to the Washington Beemo Podcast. If you want to support, there's a bunch of ways. 
One, the easiest. Leave a review on iTunes. Number two, buy some stuff on Threadless. Washedupemo.threadless.com Third, support on Patreon. And fourth, shoot me a note, admin at washedupemo.com. Thank you for listening as always. I'll see you next time. Hello, Washed Up Emo fans. Thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years. Or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And for this current episode you're about to hear, I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield also reprinted volume one so you can order both check out the diy publishing at anthologyofemo.com